0: David said, thanks again for being here with us, 4th of July weekend, and we are in a series called Off the Chain, and, and we think about 4th of July, what that, what that means for us as Americans is freedom, and we celebrate that, uh, independence, we celebrate that, and really, when Paul is writing the Galatians, he, he's, he's talking about that same kind of freedom theme, He's, he's letting us know. That, that's why the series is called Off the Chain. We don't have to be chained uh, to the el- elemental things of the world anymore. We're not even chained to a moral law. We're not chained by our sin. We are forgiven. We're free to live a new life. And that's what our series is all about. We're, we're going through Galatians chapter by chapter. We're in chapter four this morning, but I would like to remind you of the context. And that is that Paul went into this region of Galatia in modern-day Turkey, and he was uh, preaching the gospel. He was preaching the message of Jesus, and several people believed. He started several churches, and then he left that area. After he left, some false teachers came in from Jerusalem, and then they started, they were known as Judaizers, they were basically saying, Oh, great, you have faith in Jesus. That's fantastic. But, but what you also need to do is you need to observe the Jewish law. And so he put that on him. And he basically said, faith, they, they were saying, faith in Jesus plus observe the Jewish law, and then you're right with God. But that was really undoing the gospel that, that Paul had preached. And so he's writing them and he's saying, I cannot believe that you would abandon the gospel for this, for this way of earning your salvation. And so that's what's happening in the book. And and we're walking through it chapter by chapter. We're in chapter four. And here's what we're going to find out in chapter four. I mean, he's already told them that, and, and the problem with the The message, this false teaching message is you can't add anything to Jesus. not Jesus plus good works, not Jesus plus observe the law equals you're right with God. It's Jesus. Faith in Jesus means you're right with God. Then, once you're right with God, you'll be motivated. Once you've been justified, once you've been adopted into God's family, you'll be motivated to follow. But following God, obeying His law, has nothing to do with getting your salvation. That comes afterwards, and it's something we do out of gratitude. We do not earn salvation in any way. And now in chapter 4, he's going to remind us, he's going to teach us through the Galatians, he's going to say that when we became Christians, our status has changed. We now have a new family, we have a new way of living, and we have a new mission, so I want to pick it up in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And here's how he, he opens this chapter. He says, and it really, it comes off the last two paragraphs in chapter 3 uh, with this theme of adoption, but here's how it goes. Four, one. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We're going to get back to that phrase, elemental things. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So in this passage, what Paul is teaching here is that that we've been adopted by God into a new family, God's family. We're heirs to the king. And in this passage, he's mentioned that God sent forth to us. He says that twice. Once he sent forth his son, And then later he says he sent forth his spirit. And it's almost, you can think through that this way God, in wanting to redeem us and adopt us, he sent forth his son. Jesus Christ came, took on humanity, lived a perfect life, but ultimately came to die to pay for our sins. And so God sent forth his son so we would have a way to be forgiven. And if we respond in faith, we become true Christians. And our status changed. We're in a new family. We're believers. We're legally heirs of God. But then Paul also says he sent forth his spirit. And I think what's happening there is Paul saying, we already know that we have this legal status because of what Jesus did for us when he came and our response in faith. But then God sends his spirit so that he could more fully experience that. Unless I get too mystical on you, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Picture this. Picture, picture a father and son, say a father and a son, young son, and they're walking hand in hand. You're just watching them through town or wherever. They're walking hand in hand, and, and they're just going blocks and blocks, and, and you could tell father, son. But then suddenly as you're watching, the father reaches down, sweeps the son up into his arms, hugs him, and kisses him. Just enjoy, sets him back down, and they continue walking. Now, the whole time the son is walking with his father, he knows this is dad. I belong to him. I'm his son. He gets that, he has the knowledge. But when his father sweeps him up into his arm, hugs and kisses him, then the son experiences more fully the intimacy that he has and the joy that he has with the Father. And I believe what Paul's trying to tell us here is Jesus made our adoption possible. Jesus made a way through faith where we, be, we could become connected with God forever. But it's the Spirit that comes to help us more fully experience the intimacy and joy that we can have in our relationship as Father. And then that's why Paul uses this term, Abba, Abba, is just a Greek way of saying, or uh, it's a way of saying, Daddy. It's Daddy, Daddy. And so there's this emotion, this intimacy, this closeness that comes with that. And I believe that's what Paul's telling us the Spirit brings into our relationship. Now, Jesus made a way for us to be adopted into this family and through the Spirit, we get to experience that more fully. And I think a lot of times we don't experience that, think about that, live in that the way we should. Tomorrow morning, my daughter, Brie is going to be induced to have our, my third grandchild, Pam and I, our, our third grandchild, and so we're really excited about that. It's an amazing thing, right? Your family grows, somebody new comes into the family. It's like, wow, cool stuff. As a matter of fact, Paul, you know, some people are saying, well, you know, why, why is Paul always calling Christians, like as Christians were, sons? Later, Paul's talking about, hey, that he, it's like he's given birth to the Galatians. So Paul even kind of, he identifies with moms as well. You know, moms may not appreciate that. Yeah, right. I'll show you what giving birth is like, but what, whatever. But a new person in the family, and we get to experience not just the legal, factual reality of that, but the intimacy, the joy, the closeness. That's what God's offering in relationship. It's not simply that our status is changed. It's that we get to experience intimacy with God through the Spirit, that we can have this closeness, this freshness in our relationship with God every day. So, and again, we don't base our acceptance from God on emotion, but the work of the Spirit allows us to more fully experience our sonship in Him. So, He starts off telling us, hey, we have a new family, our status has changed, we have a new family, and now he's going to tell us that not only do we have a new family, we have a, a new life. We have a new way to live. Specifically, he's telling us that we're, we're now free. We are unchained. We no longer have to be slaves to non-gods. Look at how he says this, beginning in verse 8. He says, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods, non-gods, he's saying. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the, that you turn back again, how is it that, you, I'm going to have to take that from the top, all right, hang with verse 9, now, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. And if you'll notice, he gets back to those elemental things. And so it's a fair question to ask. What are these no gods? What are these non-gods? What are these... Elemental things that he's talking about. It's the same thing as verse three weak and worthless elemental things. And that elemental things is really a difficult word to translate. In the Greek, it's stoichia. And as you look at that, it can mean uh, basic principles of the world or elemental things in the universe or the ABCs or one, two, threes of the universe. And really, this covers all the things that people tend to follow, that take the place of God. It's all the things that we trust in apart from God as people. Worthless, Paul says, elemental things. And if you think about their background, the Galatians, they were Gentiles, they were pagans. And to be pagan means that you just, or, or heathen means that you just chase after your desires And whatever that is, you just go full blown. But a lot of times in paganism, almost all the time, whatever that desire was, there would be a deity or a God that you could follow. I don't know if you've ever had a a phone in your hand or or you're trying to figure something out or you're trying to get directions or something. And then somebody will tell you, hey, you know, there's a blank for that. What's that? There's a you know, there's an app for that. Well, that's how it was in paganism. Whatever your desire was, hey, there's a God for that. So if, if you were into money, hey, there's a God for that. Power, there's a God for that. Lust, there's a God for that. Whatever it was, war, there's a God for that. Whatever you were into, there was a God that you could follow that was supposed to help you get that, to help you achieve that desired thing. And basically, I think what we learn from from the Scripture is that everybody worships something, whether they realize it or not. Everybody worships something. The question is, what are you worshiping? You either worship the true God or you end up a slave worshiping and serving something that isn't God and ultimately that will end up undoing you destroying you. The only alternative to the gospel, Paul's saying, is idolatry. I know that's kind of strong. We, we don't think of idolatry that way today, but, but think through it scripturally. The Ten Commandments, which is the heart of the law. God basically boils down, you want to do life right? Well, here's how you do life. I'm going to boil it down to these 10 principles. And what's the very first thing? No gods before me. It's idolatry. The very first thing that God tells us that we need to avoid is idolatry. I mean, it starts that way. And then you can make the case, as you look at this, if you mess up number 2 through 10, it's because you've already messed up number 1. Number one's everything. And we not only see that in the Old Testament, it's the same way in the New Testament. I'll give an example. New Testament doesn't mention idolatry by name as much, but it's there like it is in this passage. But when we do see it mentioned, a lot of times I think we underestimate what God's saying. I'll give an example in 1 John. In 1 John, John writes a book it's, to, it's going to be distributed to all the churches. It, it's that kind of a book. And basically, he says three things through his short book. He basically says, here's how you live in the light, here's how you live in love, and here's how you live in God. So basically, three things. And he, he, he talks about that through his book. And then at the very last phrase of the last sentence that ends the book, he throws this in. He says, he says little children guard yourselves from idols. And if you've ever read 1 John that way, you get to that and you're going, what? Little children, guard yourselves from idols, period, end of book, end of letter. The reason you go, what? Is because he's never mentioned anything about idols in the entire book. He's just telling you how to do life. Nothing about idolatry, nothing about idols. And then, right as he's closing the book, little children, guard against idols. And so either... Either John is a terrible writer, and he's written this book, and then just in closing, he's thinking, oh, I forgot this one more thing. I better shove that in. I'm going to put this in, in this last sentence and call it good. And we're all going, what? Or John's basically saying, everything I've told you in this letter, even though I never even mentioned idolatry, it all boils down to you putting something before God in your life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I believe that's what's going on there. And I believe that's the kind of emphasis that Paul is using in this passage as well. And if you take that a little further, you'll start realizing that here's what I'm saying. If you have problems living out the Christian life. I mean, we all have issues and we all sin. But if you have some, some issues that keep reoccurring, if you just keep feeling like you're getting sidetracked on the whole following God thing, if you are having problems living out the Christian life, there's a good chance it boils down to idolatry. I know that is a foreign way for, for us to think, but hear me out. I think they're saying the greatest danger we have in living the Christian life is not that we do this or do that. It's not deeds and actions. It's really idolatry. I think John's saying the same thing the Ten Commandments are saying. If you don't have God first, that's the root of all your issues. That's the root of all your sin. We all worship something. And the only alternative to worshiping the one true God is to chase after something that becomes an idol in our life. Another way to say it, we, we, all, we, we all fail in the Christian life. We become Christians. We want to follow God out of gratitude and love. We, we know we can't earn our salvation, but we want to do the right thing. God's done everything for us. So we want to follow him in truth. But then we mess up and, and we fail to be like Jesus, whether we fail to be honest or fail to be generous or pure or kind. Whatever it is, here's what we think. We think, well, I'm so flawed as a sinner that I, it, it makes me powerless to overcome this issue in my life. My sin makes me powerless to fix this issue in my life. But when we fail it's often because we've made something an idol in our life. And we need, when we find ourselves repeatedly failing in one area of our life, we need to start asking ourselves some tough questions. For example, we need to ask ourselves, what's in my life that I've put in the place of God in my life? What besides God is my priority. What am I focused on? What have I elevated too high? Or check this out. What is God telling me in His Word that I'm not believing? And because I say intellectually I believe, but in my heart I'm really not believing it, I keep thinking that I have another way of achieving something that's actually not following God. And when we start asking ourselves questions like that, we will find that sometimes we're elevating things above God in our life. And generally, they're good things that we've turned into bad things because we've overemphasized them. That, that's what's included in these elemental things, these non gods that Paul's talking about. So, how do they enslave us? Well, these things that could even be good things, they enslave us when we overemphasize our desire for those even maybe good things. Uh, They end up becoming destructive in our life. It's interesting because when Paul uses the word desire in this passage we just read, there's there's a a Greek word, thilo, for that. But in the next chapter, chapter 5, He uses another Greek word, a much stronger Greek word that's translated the same way, desire, epithumio. And when he's saying that, and that's a very hard word to translate, but all this, I think, is in Paul's thinking. It's hard to translate because it's really a too strong of a desire. And a lot of times in the Bible, that's translated as, as lust. The problem with translating it as lust is it makes us think that it's only talking about sexuality and it's not. It's way broader than that. And when you look at what Paul's saying about this over-desire or desires in our life, and if you translate it that way, it's like bad desire or lust is not a normal desire for something evil. This bad desire or lust or this epithemeo, is really an over-desire for something good. You see, our sin isn't sometimes that we we're, that we're just have a normal desire for something's wrong. I think most of the time our sin is because we have an over-desire, epithemeo, an over-desire for something that is actually God created as good, but because we've placed too much desire on it, it twists and becomes destructive in our life, and we can become enslaved to it because of our overdesire. We have placed that above God in our lives, even though it's a good thing. Because we've placed it above God, it becomes a destructive thing. It becomes an idol in our life. And so the next question is, you know, what can that be in our life? Well, that, that could be anything. Things that aren't necessarily bad. It could be money or achievement or love. In this way of interpreting it, you could even say, you lust for your children to be happy, that, which is a good desire, but if you over-desire that and it starts controlling your life, it will mess you up and it'll mess your kids up. That's what he's saying. So how can we be freed? Think about this. A lot of times, people are struggling with long-term issues that they, they don't seem to be able to free themselves from, like bitterness. So as a Christian, you have somebody, it's just bitterness, you know, or, or disappointment, or guilt. And a lot of times, if you can't get over something like bitterness, there's, there's a reason for that. If you can't get rid of this bitterness in your life, the reason that you can't let it go is not sometimes because of what the person did to you. It's because of how important whatever it is you lost because they did something to you. Sometimes, for example, if somebody's done something to you and you're bitter and you know you should forgive and move on, but you're bitter, you can't let it go. Sometimes it's not just the thing they did. It's the thing they did caused you to lose something and you can't get over it because you, that thing you lost, you're putting on a level of God that you have to have that. And so you've lost it. You can't get it back. This other person's responsible. And, and now your life's wrecked and it will never be fixed because you're putting an overemphasis, an overdesire on whatever that was. Does that make sense? And it's the same way with a lot of things in our lives. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, Um, wow, like it'll be a guilt thing. I did this. And and sometimes they'll say something like, I can't even forgive my, yeah, I can't even forgive myself. This is so bad. I can't even forgive myself. Sometimes what they can't, the, the problem that they're having is not so much the, the sin or the wrong thing that they may have done. It might have been that they didn't achieve or, or they had a bad investment or they lost their spouse. And, and, and maybe that was because they did something wrong, or maybe it's because they just weren't paying enough attention or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden they can't forgive themselves. But part of that is not just what they did. Part of that is because they're realizing what they lost, they can't get back, and they're putting an overemphasis on what they lost, and they're elevating that thing up to where God should be, and all of a sudden their life is forever ruined because that most important thing was lost, and they can't forgive themselves because they don't see any way of coming out of that. Here's, and here's... And so, even though you might have lost it because your fa- failure, it's not your failure that's a problem. It's, it's getting over the overemphasizing the opportunity or whatever was lost. Now, the stunning thing that Paul is saying in this text, it kind of freaks you out a little bit if you think about it, is that basically Paul's telling these Galatians who, who were pagans, he says, You were slaves to idols and now you want to go back, he said, are you fools? But here's the thing that we we want to know. When Paul says, and now you want to go back, what, what are you, idiots? What are they going back to? You see, they're actually not going back to worshiping false gods and idols the way we think of it. What they're going back to is this new teaching that has come in from the false teachers saying, no, it's not just faith in Christ. You have to do all these things. You have to observe the religious calendar, days, months, and years. You have to do all this stuff. The amazing thing is, and again, the stunning thing about this is, is we have Paul, he's comparing being super moral to being a pagan heathen. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're going to go back to this system where you chase elemental things, he's kind of saying, hey, if you leave the gospel, that you're only saved as a gift through grace, that you cannot earn it, if you leave that message and embrace this false teaching that not only do you have to have faith in Christ, you really have to follow all these religious old testament jewish laws that are obsolete he said if you're thinking that you have to do that if you're thinking that you have to perform all that stuff in order to be right with god in order to achieve the desires of your heart you might as well be a heathen pagan worshiping idols of stone it's the same thing because you're gutting the gospel it's either the gospel or nothing there's no halfway. And so we actually have Paul comparing, and for today, comparing people in our day, maybe some of us here, because it's easy to do this. It's natural for us to think this way. That's why the gospel is counterintuitive. We keep thinking that somehow we have to do something in order to earn favor with God, and even when we hear the gospel that, no, we don't do that, it's all by grace, it's a free gift, then we become Christians, and as Christians, we start thinking, there must be something that I should be doing to help God out here. You know, I, I, there's something I should be doing to sort of confirm what God's done for me. To, and really, and you should be. But as soon as you attach that to somehow this is helping God save me, Paul's saying, you might as well, you might as well be worshiping a, a, an idol of stone, a god of war, a god of money, a god of sex, whatever it is. You might as well be worshiping that because it's no better. If being super moral for you is a way of being right with God, it will make you just as enslaved as when you were pagans. Because by doing that, somehow you're being your own savior. And and Paul can't get over it. These false teachers are saying, believe in Jesus, follow the Jewish law, and you'll be right with God. And Paul's saying, that seems slightly wrong But it's actually the opposite of the gospel because the gospel is believe in Jesus you are right with God and then you'll want to follow him. Now not only does our changed status bring us a new family and a new life it also brings us a new mission. I'm not going to read the next section but Basically, starting in in verse 12 to verse 20, Paul's basically, he's talking about their relationship. And and he's saying it this way, that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have this mission to point each other and others to God. And he starts then talking about his relationship that he had with the Galatians. As a matter of fact, part of what he says is he, he says, I became like you so that you could become like me, which is the exact same thing that he said to another group of people in Corinthians. First Corinthians 9.22, Paul wrote, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. Paul's saying, you can never compromise on the gospel. That's that's the whole point He's saying the gospel is so important, this message, this good news to people, that they can be saved by grace through faith in what Christ has done. This is so important that I will change and become like anybody else to connect with them and relate with them so that I can have a free hearing of the gospel, so they can get them to just listen, to connect with me regarding this message, the gospel, because it's everything. He brought them to truth through relation. He talks about how they cared for him, how how they loved him, how they helped him through his illness, how how they would have done whatever they could for him. He brought them truth through relationship. It's kind of like what I tell the supervisors among our staff here at Grace. There's a saying, they all know it, but I say this, I say, love first, lead second, but always do both. And they know what that means. What that means is we love people. We're called to love people. We want their best interests. So when we make decisions and we're trying to help them grow and develop and be everything they can be, we we love them first. But lead second means the leading is the tougher part. It's you have to be honest with people. You have to challenge them. You have to challenge them with truth. You have to let them know what's going on. So it's love first, lead second, but you always have to do both. Because you're not really loving people. And this applies to us and our our lives with people around us. We're not really loving people if we're not telling them truth. Because loving them is wanting the best for them. And so sometimes when you're loving them, then you're also pointing them to God and you're sharing truth with them. And sometimes that can be awkward. Sometimes they'll have some truth to share right back to you. And that may be appropriate. But if you really want to love and you really want to lead, you have to do both of those things. You cannot stop short. Lives change where Christians love people with truth. We cannot ever effectively love people at the expense of truth. It just doesn't work. We're not really loving them if we're leaving out the truth. And that truth starts with bad news. That truth for every person we know and ourselves, it starts with bad news, and that is that we're all morally flawed. We cannot do God's standard. He's, God has shared truth for us with us out of love, but the truth is devastating and a lot of times it causes a lot of people in our culture, they won't even look at the truth. That's what we were talking about last time. Because the truth will crush them. And so we try to minimize the law or we try to make it irrelevant. But it's only believers, it's only with the gospel that we can look fully, full into the law and see the weight of it and have it not crush us because we realize that it, we that our salvation is not based on us doing it, that God has done it for us. So in loving people with truth, that's how we make an impact with people. It starts with the bad news that we're all moral failures. And the other part of that bad news is that God is perfectly just, just like we'd expect him to be, and just like we want him to be unless he's dealing with us. And in his justice, just like everywhere there's justice, wrong has to be punished. And because we've all, we're all wrong, we've all rebelled against God, we've all failed his moral standards, and we've even done it intentionally, we deserve eternal separation from God. Bad news. That's a reality for everybody on the planet. But there's good news for everybody on the planet. And that is that God loves you. He knows you, he knows everything about you, and he loves you. And he made a way for you to be reconciled to him. But in order to do it without violating his own justice, It came at an incredible cost that he would allow his only son, Jesus Christ, to leave heaven to clothe himself in humanity. And he lived a perfect life on his way to voluntarily allowing himself to be killed for our sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He paid our penalty for sin so that we don't have to. And the way that we get his payment counted for us, God says, is that we have to respond in faith. That's the good news. We don't have to do it. We just have to accept it. And when I say faith in Jesus, what I mean is that you believe who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, and that you're placing your trust in what he did on the cross of Calvary, that it is enough to pay for all of your sins, your lifetime of sins, your sins past, your sins present, your sins future, that his death on the cross was enough to pay for all of that. And that's what it means to be a true Christian. And what Paul is warning us here is that if we think we're true Christians because we go to church, or because we've been baptized, or because we think we're a good parent, or a good neighbor, or anything like that, we think somehow that makes God okay with us, we are completely misunderstanding the gospel and we're believing in something that is just the opposite. That's what he's telling us. It's faith in Jesus alone. And nothing else. God loves you. He knows everything about you. He knows all your rebellion and sin, and He still loves you. He loves you more deeply than you've ever dreamed. And at great cost, He's made a way for you to be reconciled to Him. But it only happens through faith. Right now, um, I'm getting ready to close, but uh, we haven't done this in a few weeks. And I just, if you've been with us and And maybe even right now, you're ready to place your faith in Christ, so I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And the way I'm going to do that is is what it means to be a Christian is put your trust in Jesus, only in Jesus. The way we sometimes express that to God is through prayer. And if you're ready, if you're trusting in Jesus right now, ready to do that, here's how you can express it to God, and I want to lead you through that. So let's all bow our heads. First of all, I just want you to know God God knows your every thought, and so you can talk to God silently, and He hears you. And I don't want to embarrass anybody or anything, so just know you can do that. And if you're hearing this message, and this is the most important message, the gospel that you'll ever hear in your life. If you're hearing this today for the first time or not, and you're ready to to put all your eggs in the basket. If you're ready to put all your trust in Jesus, tell God maybe something like this right now. You can pray this way. Father in heaven, I, I totally understand that I have done wrong. And that means I've violated your commands. And that means I've rebelled against you. And that even means that I'm guilty. And it means that I deserve punishment. That's the right thing. But God, I also understand that you love me anyway. And you've created a way for me to be forgiven that does not violate your justice. That you allowed Jesus to die on the cross. And right now, I am placing my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. And I know I cannot bring anything to the table. I, I can't anything, do anything to help you save me. It's just Jesus and my trust is in Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my life through your Spirit. And knowing my position is secure in you, that I'm yours forever, I also ask that you'd help me to follow you. Thanks for loving me like that, in Christ's name. I'd like your heads to be bowed. I'm just going to ask for a response. Again, I'm not here to embarrass anybody, just a way for us to pray for you. If you're on the left side, your left of our auditorium and and you prayed that prayer, thank you. Just pop your hand up and let me know that. Thank you very much, thank you, sir. Anyone else, just up and put it right down. I see you right there, thanks. I see you. thank you, you too. Just put it up and put it down, that's, that's all I need you to do, I see you. Anyone else, put it up and down. And then the right side of the auditorium, hey Kevin, yeah, I just, prayed that prayer or I put it in my own words but I was sincere I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus maybe as far as I know for the first time today I'd just like you to raise your hand right now so I can see you I see you right there I see you there see you there see you back there thanks anyone else? just let me see you thank you very much let's stand together and we're going to close in prayer Father in heaven, we thank you for these several people, these souls that you know and love perfectly. who are placing their trust in you today. Lord, we thank you for that. Thanks that we, we get to see that. And Father, I pray that they would feel your presence in their life and, Lord, that they would know that this is forever, that it's a gift. And, Father, I pray that you help us as a church uh, to move forward and to be what we need to be. And, Lord, that you would help us interact with each other in such a way that we'll all be pointing each other to Jesus and also sharing your message with other people. God, thanks. Thanks for bringing us here together at Grace. And uh, thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.